Many of us have experienced our parents asking us what the consequences of our own misdeeds should be. This very thing happened to King David as the Lord comes to him and asks, what punishment does he want or what consequences does he want for his own sin? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, March 2nd, 2014. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are in the middle of a sermon series, but we're going to take a break this week. So normally, uh, we're in the book of Matthew. We're going to run the book of Matthew all the way to Easter. I, I just might go past it uh, to finish off the Sermon on the Mount because of the closure aspect that would be so satisfying. But we're at least going to cover up until Easter. So we're going to go through Lent in the book of Matthew covering Lent is a time of uh, repentance. Lent is a time to look at your own sins um, in, inwardly. And I think the Sermon on the Mount, as you've discovered, helps us do that. It takes a look at our heart. takes a look at our actions. So I thought I'd take a break because uh, on Wednesday is, you could guess what's happening on Wednesday, is Ash Wednesday, which to me, if it was up to us, we do not have midweek services. One of the first ones that I would start was Ash Wednesday. I think it's a really important service and um, I'm highly recommending that you go to one of our sister churches, my family and I are, are going to go, that you can go there and you can contemplate and say, what have my sins done and what has God done for those sins, which really sets the tone, I think, for Lent. Lent isn't just like giving up um, eating meat. Lent isn't just giving up like uh, drinking alcohol or something like that. Lent is a time where you focus and say, I want to uh, make sure my heart is prepared to hear the true and wonderful message of the gospel that's proclaimed not only on Good Friday, but on Easter. So to do that, I could have preached Transfiguration today like most of Christendom is going to do, but since we don't have a Wednesday service, I thought we'd talk about some of these themes, these themes of confession, and we're going to tell a story. And the story is the, uh, a question of who would you choose? And it's the story of David. So I got a picture of David here. He's the small person right there. That's Goliath. Now that's not quite proportional right there. Right there, Goliath I think is 62 feet tall. I mean, if you look at the horizon going... Um, but this is the story of David, and think of all these cool things that you know about David. So you're thinking of some of these. This is King David who wrote like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So you've got a couple ideas, right? It, you, know, you might have at least one story in your mind that's coming out. All those things, by the time we get to it in uh, 2 Samuel, are done. He's an old king by now. So this idea of David and Goliath in the past, um, his sin with Bathsheba and God's forgiveness in the past, David, as we just read last week, escaping Saul for a 10-year period, running away from him. That's all in the past. And now he's this old king. And in fact, on the land of Israel, there's kind of a peace, which I think you can understand. When is the last time a nation has come to attack the U.S. on our soil? I think Pearl Harbor, if I am I getting it right. Now, you could argue and say there's terrorists, so, but that's still a decade ago, right? More like this huge event. This is 10 years ago. So for the most part in America, would you say that we live in kind of this time of peace? I don't think that's that tricky, right? I, I think we do, right? We live in peace for the most part. I know there's wars going outside of our own borders. This is kind of what was happening at the time of Israel. There was this time of peace. There was no wars. Um, David's this older king. And God had spent, I mean, most of David's life teaching him uh, about sin and how serious it was and spent most of David's life teaching him how merciful God was. So we get to this point. The strange thing is, even when people know they shouldn't be doing something, sometimes they still do it. So this is the story of who would you choose with King David. Uh, this is from 2 Samuel. Um, this is God coming to him and saying, take his census, and it says he's testing him. 
And this, this strange parallel account, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this point, in Chronicles it says the devil tempted him. So it seems, if we try and figure this out, it seems that God said, um, take a census of your people. And the devil provoked David in some way that this is not a positive thing. My question is, is it really a big deal to count people? Here's David's command. Uh, so the king said to Joab, uh, the army commanders, Joab is his main man and has been for most of his uh, life. That's his, his general. Joab is the one who has an awesome quote. You know how David um, loves all the people that are just terrible to him, like Absalom, his son, and he does all these things for him and all these people that are awful to him. Uh, Joab is the one that says, David, you love the ones that hate you and you hate the ones that love you. That's, that's from Job. So Job is a, a, a pretty fascinating guy, insightful guy. So Job in the army, and he says, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. That's it. This is the mighty sin of David. Does that seem like a big deal to you? How many of you count people? Yeah, I go to the mall. What do I do when I get in the car? I count my kids, right? This is a good thing. This is not salacious. This is not naughty. This is not going to make a movie rated R. Like they're, you're watching Common Sense Media and it says like, and then there was the counting scene. You know, this does not happen. This is not really a big deal. Why is it good that you count? That's in fact responsible, I would argue, to count people. Has anyone ever been left behind by their parents? Yeah, if, you have more, if your parents have two kids... I don't know how you'd leave any behind, but my parents had five. So we got left behind at a place called Treasure Island. Hmm? Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? it? It's not a water park. It's a department store. So like all these visions you had of like being at a casino and getting free pop as a kid, you're like, this, that would have been awesome. Not awesome. You're sitting at a department store on the corner. I can still picture myself like, where are my parents? That's not the worst story, actually. Um, I was going to say that my parents weren't teachers, so they don't believe in the, the no, time, no one left behind, no child left behind, but they actually both were in education. And then I was going to say they're not Marines, so there's no one left behind, but my dad actually was in the ROTC Marines. So I don't know why they decided to leave me behind. One time we went camping. So just imagine this as a kid. We go camping with all these friends and these other families, and it was like Jesus. They went down to um, Jerusalem, and my parents forgot me there. Now, granted, we drove one of those like Impala station wagons, which are like from here to the curtain. So maybe they couldn't even see in the back, and they just saw movement, and they assumed, because I was in the seat that faced this way. Well, they faced that way. It's called the car sick seat. Um, so that's where I sat with my brother. But they totally forgot me before cell phones, and you can imagine this situation with your own kids. You forget your child. There's no way to contact them. So they drove back, and I just rode home with someone else. So they had to just trust that I was not dead. I, I didn't die, just for the record. So I think it's actually kind of a good thing to count people. So it seems really odd. Why would God care so much that David decides to count his army? Well, I said Job's pretty insightful, and it seems that they pick up on something that we maybe miss in this section. So he tells this to Joab, and Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? In fact, in Chronicles it says uh, Joab is repulsed by this command. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Joab, th these guys that were actually with David when he took down Goliath, how is it that David was able to take down Goliath? Just think in your mind, how is it that's even possible? that this little boy can do this. 
How is it possible that David can flee for 10 years from the commander of the army and never be harmed? How is that possible? How is it possible he can go into battle outnumbered and win victory? The answer, of course, is the Lord, right? And so these men, Joab, who went shoulder to shoulder with him, who no doubt going into battle thinking like, what are we doing? But somehow find victory. These are the men who stood by him when David completely trusted the Lord again and again and again. And now David gets older and what is David saying? It's not about the Lord anymore. Right now it's about me my pride and security in this army I have. This process, this isn't something like you just go online and you type in and say how many people. Do you know how long it took? Almost 10 months. So 10 months pass, and it says they came back to Jerusalem at the end of sorry, nine months and 20 days. And Joab reports the number of the fighting men to the king. It's about a million five, so I cut that out. Immediately, David is conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. David goes to bed. So David immediately recognizes that you can imagine this situation. Ten months, they're gone, and this had to be kind of weighing on him throughout this thing. He's like, what did I just do here? What did I do? So it goes on and on and on. And finally they show up. They tell him the number and he feels terrible. And Joab resists. It doesn't say in the scripture that Joab said, I, uh, I told you so. But he doesn't. And David feels this guilt and he says, God, I've sinned against you. And he goes to bed. Before David even gets up, the word comes to Gad. So before David gets up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. He said, go and tell David. This is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Has that ever happened to you when your parents? <laughs> now, it's either super genius parenting or lazy parenting. I can't figure out which, one, which side of it sits on. You do something wrong. This is not usually like, son, you're going to choose your consequences. We're going to go to Red Robin, Ice Cream, or to Disney World. You know, this is not the options that are usually on the table, are they? You've done something wrong. Your parents are saying, what are you going to do? The Lord does this to David. Does this seem fair? Who thinks this seems fair? This seems fair. I mean, as a parent, sometimes you just don't feel like uh, thinking of the consequences. You say, what do you think would be best in this situation? And kids are usually harder, usually harder on themselves than you are usually. Sometimes you have to kind of up the you have to kind of add in. It's like a supplemental system that you have to add for their discipline. But this doesn't seem like that bad of a deal. Now, if you did something wrong and the judge said to you, say you were speeding and, and say you were driving in Denver and you got picked up by one of those photo cards and then it takes a picture of your car and you get a $40 fine in the mail. I mean, just hypothetically, say this happens. And what happens if the judge said you got a couple options here? You can pay the $40 or you can come downtown and do an hour of community service. Does that seem fair? I think it sounds fair. I don't know if many of us would drive all the way up to Denver to do an hour of community service. You're like $40. Okay. I mean, this is all in the hypothetical. I mean, this didn't happen to anyone last week. So uh, this is the situation. This makes sense. We're all in agreement that this makes some sense. Here's the kicker, though. These are the option God gives. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine, three years of watching, the, the land that David rules just be dry up. In three years of like meal by meal, people dying. Three years of that. Three years of fleeing from your enemies. 
and, and that it says marauder. So it sounds like it's your enemies are going to be coming into your nation for three months or three days of plague in your land. Now then think it over. You decide, how should you answer the one who sent me? What would you pick? What would you pick if you had to pick someone to suffer for your sins? Doesn't this seem a little absurd? Like, what happens? You don't sit your kids down and my, you know, one punches the other one and we're like, okay, you get to pick. Do I ground this sister or this one? You know, is, is that what you do? Maybe on a sports team that happens. You know, like one is always lazy or something, and they try and what is what's really happening is the coach is trying to find some self-discipline happening. They're like, all right, you're late, no problem. Everybody's going to run. And they know the team is going to have a discussion with this person that says you show up on time. Right? That is what's happening. Th- th- that seems, okay, legitimate. Does this seem fair? Who would you pick to suffer for your sins? David doesn't even question it because he recognizes this. As king, when he does something, other people always suffer. As a human being, when he sins, other people suffer. And you're saying, like, there's no way I can choose. Are you uncomfortable choosing which of these? A little bit? We just went through a confession of sins. Not every church on the planet does that, but we went through a confession of sins at the beginning of service. You could pick any sin of those. Do any of those sins happen in a vacuum where no one else is affected? In fact, you could just pick any sin that you're struggling with and say, oh my God, this has effects on all kinds of people. I'll just give you a couple examples. A couple is having some difficulty in their marriage. It's not going that well. They're not hiding in front of the kids that their voices are starting to escalate. They don't love each other the way they should. There isn't the same romance. There isn't the same affection. There isn't the same respect. And they say, they maybe get to a point, they say, for the good of the kids... For the good of the kids, we should end this. Is that really for the good of the kids? That two, they live in different houses. Is it really for the good of the kids? That they no longer talk and show love? Or is it for the good of the kids that they say, you know what? We're going to grow up and we're going to look at what God says and we're going to reconcile and fix this thing. That doesn't always happen. Young man starts clicking on the internet. And he sees these images on his screen and he figures, I'm not engaged to anyone I'm not married. This doesn't affect anybody. Little does he know that like image by image, his view of his future spouse is tainted and changed forever. And no longer is this the object of my affection, but an object of my lust. Forever. Image by image. And each click starts to pay for an industry that takes vulnerable girl after vulnerable girl after vulnerable girl. Do you really sin in a vacuum? We're hearing about suicides, and I'm not saying there's particular people to blame, but do you wonder how many of those, this has happened in Castle Rock, I think four in the last six months, which is just um, heartbreaking. We see our kids interact with other kids, and you just say, hey, that's kids just being kids, but do you wonder how many people go to bed at night crying because of the words your own kids said to them? that made him feel like, where's my value? Do you wonder how many people go to bed at night crying and feeling like, where is my worth because of things you said? How many people go to bed at night just saying like, where do I stand because of some gossip or some story that you shared? Can you really sin in a vacuum? Is there any, each time you sin, you're saying, I want other people to suffer for my actions. 
And it doesn't just stop there. How many people are not affected by just not doing the good things you should be doing? How many people need a voice to stand up for them and you've just kept silent because you said it's enough? There's a famous atheist. atheist. We haven't killed like King David, I don't think. I don't think. Uh, There's a famous atheist who says this quote. I'll come back to that in a second. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not going to eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? How much do you have to hate someone, somebody, to believe heaven is possible and not tell them that? What's the purpose of us getting together? I mean, sure, it's to get together on one level, on a positive way to encourage each other and have this influence on each other. But the reason we get together is because God has revealed to us in his word his truth. And how many times have we said, you know what, I just don't feel like going there because it's awkward and it's weird and I don't want to invite someone to come and hear about the Savior. You cannot do anything without other people affected. Anyone recognize the photo? Anybody over the age of 16 recognize the photo? All right. It's, it's from the movie Frozen. And we have not seen the movie Frozen. The kids' grandmother took them there, and we said, hey, that's great. You know, it's this animated movie. I'm like, go ahead, take them. The kids come back. They're like, Dad, it was awesome. So it's apparently really good. So they get the soundtrack. Has anyone heard the soundtrack? Uh, so the soundtrack, we've been listening to this. I you know I listened to to get ready for my ski trip on, on Friday. Um, so I'm listening to the soundtrack. Owen and I went. He had school off, so I said, hey, let's go skiing. It's better than trying to like, keep track of him running around the house. So we decided to go skiing. One of the songs called, uh, Do You Want to Build a Snowman? Have you heard it? Do you want to build a snowman? Run around the hall. Okay, so it's this really, it's this really, okay, I may have almost cried. Almost. And the, the premise of this song is this, and I said that to Amy, I'm like, man, this song almost makes me cry. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, really? I mean, big deal. But if you listen to the words, this is what happens in the song. So it's just this little girl like right here, and I'll tell you the scene that happens there. Her friend, I don't know the whole situation because I haven't seen the movie, but these two sisters are really close. Something happens where the one sister goes in isolation and does not want to hurt the other sister. That's what I, ga- I, that's what I gather from the, the, this song. And so the other girl is knocking on the other's door, the one who's in isolation, who doesn't want to hurt this sister. And she's saying, hey, do you want to build a snowman? This is going to be really fun. And right in this scene, she's whispering in the keyhole, it doesn't have to be a snowman. So it's this really, and you're like, oh, that's kind of cute. Well, suddenly the next scene is the girl a little bit older, knocking on the door, saying, hey, do you want to go build a snowman? Do you want to ride our bikes around the hall? Because she's totally lonely. The next scene, you can get a sense just by Disney sounds that the parents die, because parents always die in Disney movies. Um, So there's this sounds you're saying, like, there's some tragedy going on, and then she's a full-grown woman knocking on her sister's door, saying, hey, let's, we're the only ones for each other. Do you want to build a snowman? And the girl never comes out. Even in this silly little illustration, this girl says, I'm not going to affect anyone else. I don't want to hurt anyone else. I want to just stay in my room. But who else is affected? Her sister. You cannot do anything, anything, without affecting other people. And if you're naive enough to think that my sins are just in a bubble, God has something else to tell you. So what would you pick? Three years of famine, three months of marauding from an army, or three days of plague. David takes the plague. 
So David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of humans. He is smart enough to know that humans don't play nice, and I do not want three months of human beings coming to effect. I'm going to just lay this on the Lord. So the plague comes. So the Lord sent the plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, this three days. 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba die. When the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel, who was afflicting the people, enough, this is God speaking, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. 70,000 people. How would you feel as king, like when these reports are coming back, in Dan, 12,000 dead, in Beersheba, 6,000 dead, as you sit there and say, why are these people dying? Your sin. How do you feel when you just see like the, the, the ripples of your own sin start to, just think about this for a second, that start to hit. How many people are affected by your own indulgence in your stuff and saying, I want this. How many of your family members are affected by that? How many people are affected when you say, this is my time, I'm not going to give it to anyone else, and you see those ripples start to get in the earth? Can, can you get a sense of how David would have felt? Can you get a sense of how he would have felt? This threshing floor, can you see that picture? Here's the unique thing. The threshing floor that is on the top of a mountain inside of Jerusalem, and David decides, you know, I've got to make this end. In fact, the text says that God ended before it, but David says, I've got to build this altar, and I've got I to give something to the Lord. So he decides to buy this threshing floor. Um, if you want to know what it is, we can talk afterwards. So he buys this threshing floor to build this altar, and he gets ready to make this sacrifice. You know what else happened on this threshing floor? About a thousand years before? As a knife is about to plunge into a man's son, an angel sweeps down and gives a lamb, Mount Moriah. You know what happens just a few years after this, after David buys this? His own sons build something. You know what he builds? On this location, a temple. He builds this temple, millions and millions and millions of dollars but thousands and thousands of lambs come again and again and again. And what principle is God laying out with all these lambs that are dying? The shocking principle that says when we sin, we want someone else to pay for it. God feels the same way. And with your sin, God says, I am going to pay for it. And so the Lamb of God goes to be sacrificed right in that same Jerusalem, that Lamb of God goes to die, and that Lamb of God goes to pay for your sins. How are you going to spend your Lent? You're going to spend it full of uh, misery, saying God has abandoned me, even though God says I remember you and I know you? Are you going to spend it in a lie that says, God, my sins are really not that big of a deal? Even though God sees the consequences and how this affects other people, are you going to live it in some sense of guilt? I'm preaching and I feel guilty because I can feel the ripples of what my actions have done to other people. Is that how you're going to spend your Lent? What do you think? Dear God, I, I, I'm awful. I'm horrible. I want this to end. David recognized the same thing and he said this, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. God relented 
And it's David who recognizes that God is a shepherd. It's David who recognizes that God scoops you up like a lamb and says, you are forgiven, you're mine, and fall into my arms, for my mercy is great. You got 40 days of Lent, and you can sit and feel bad about yourself. You can sit in denial, or you can say, God, I trust in you. I don't know who I would choose, but I'm glad you chose Jesus so that I can choose to live a different way. Amen.